What does true wellness mean to you? I'm Claudia Cometa, and that is the question I will be leading with in the Minding Wellness podcast. Each and every week, I will bring you experts who will share their personal wellness journeys and their insights into what it means to mind our wellness. Health is a state of body. Wellness is a state of being. Let's dive into improving our state of being. It's another week and another podcast episode. Welcome back, podcast family. I am here with a guest for the second time. I don't often do that, but there was a really great and interesting topic on the table, and David Krantz was the perfect person to talk about it. If you missed his previous episode with us, I will give you a quick background. He is a certified epigenetic coach and sought-after expert in the field of individualized genetic-based nutrition and peak performance. As a lifelong musician, he sees the various systems of the body as parts of a complex symphony, and as a coach, he excels at helping clients fine-tune those parts to create resonant, harmonious health and harness their creative and personal power. An expert in the pharmacogenetics of the endocannabinoid system, David is best known for developing a proprietary genetic test that helps patients understand their unique and individual response to cannabinoids and was nominated in 2019 as a top 100 health innovator by the International Forum for Healthcare Advancement. David and I talk about psychedelics today, and I, to be honest, five years ago would not have had this conversation. I would have thought that this was not a valuable topic to share, but I have since read the literature, studied the science, and find this a very fascinating and evidence-based approach to mental health, and I think it is valuable enough to share. So if you were like me and think, oh, this topic isn't for me or this doesn't interest me, I encourage you to stick with it. I think you'll find some really fascinating parts to this episode, really insightful pieces that David shares, and I really hope you enjoy and share with others who might benefit. Here we go with David. I'm so excited to be here with David Krantz again. He was with us back on episode 89, which is just shocking to me that we have come that far since we last talked. So I'm really excited to bring him back on for a topic that may be controversial to some, maybe seems uninteresting to some, but I think on the whole has so much potential and it is truly so fascinating. So I loved the opportunity to bring David back to talk about psychedelics in the mental health field, although it's being studied in other fields, but we'll focus on that in this episode. And I just am so grateful that you're back with us, David. Welcome back. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me again. And, uh, you know, it's always funny to look back on episodes that you've done or, or work you've done in the past and, and see how much time has, has passed since then and kind of, you know, look at the journey. So I'm glad to glad to come back. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you back. I was actually looking and this was even many iterations of podcast graphics ago. So time definitely flies. Let's start out with the basics of what psychedelics are. I know this may sound very Woodstock-like to some people, but let's just start with the very 101 on why psychedelics, what are they, and why are they important in the mental health field? So psychedelics is a term for a pretty broad range of compounds that alter 
consciousness and change the way that we experience reality from a normal waking state. And, you know, these are psychoactive compounds. A lot of them are derived from plants. Um, so when we're talking about psychedelics, we're talking about um, uh, psychedelic mushrooms. Uh, the main compound in those are psilocybin. We're talking about LSD, uh, DMT, ayahuasca, talking about MDMA, uh, which is not so much of a psychedelic. It's not doesn't have the same effects as what they call the classical psychedelics like LSD, um, but it does create altered states. And that's one of the ones that's being studied um, and having some really strong results for things like PTSD. And also talking about ketamine, which is an anesthetic that's been used uh, in surgery and uh, in medicine for a very long time, a very strong safety profile. But it does also have the side effect of creating these many psychedelic states. And each one of these compounds kind of has its own distinct characteristics and different qualities to the experience. And, you know, we're talking, and, and some people also classify cannabis as a psychedelic as well, um, you know, typically less powerful than the others. Uh, but each one of them kind of has their own individual pharmacological effects on the brain. And they are showing uh, to have some pretty potent benefits for mental health when used in the right setting and used um, with a therapist and, and used as a, as a tool to help overcome mental health difficulties and, and really process things in a, in a different way. And we can go into um, you know, uh, all the details of that if you want. Yes, I just find this so fascinating because, you know, we have decades of research with antidepressants and so far what's coming out on psychedelics in the literature is blowing that out of the water. So to me, this is super fascinating and it's really important that we as clinicians, as scientists, as researchers, just all of us in this field who are trying to help make the mental health field progress in the right direction that we really pay attention to the value that this class of drugs may really provide to those who may be resistant to other treatment options. So I would really love to know, I know you've done some research in this field. I would love to know what you are finding with regard to the efficacy of psychedelics, specifically in the mental health field. Absolutely. So my colleagues and I published a paper in the Journal of Mental Health Counseling at the end of uh, last year, at the end of 2020, uh, that we entitled The Role of Psychedelics in Mental Health Counseling. And it was a literature review where we went back and kind of collected all of the recent studies on uh, psilocybin, MDMA, and ketamine, and kind of grouped them together and said, hey, here's the summary of the findings. And, you know, what's interesting and, and I'll say there, there's some pretty impressive results. Uh, really, um, you know, ketamine is, is showing really good results for depression, uh, better, like you said, than, you know, the typical um, SSRIs and other antidepressants on the market. Um, MDMA has shown some really strong results for PTSD. Uh, the FDA actually gave it a breakthrough therapy designation, which means that in the phase two trials, so there's usually three phases of FDA clearance trials. And in the phase two, the results were so strong 
as compared to the, the standard of care treatment that they gave it this breakthrough treatment designation and kind of pushed it through further in these phase three trials, meaning that they're doing just broader studies to make sure that they're getting the same results. Um, they're, they're, they kind of push those through and are accelerating the process because the impact on PTSD is, is so strong and so positive. Uh, and then psilocybin, uh, the main ingredient in what some people call magic mushrooms or um, uh, psilocybin mushrooms, those uh, those have been are being studied for a variety of things, uh, from depression to alcoholism to actually end of life anxiety. That's one of the big um, things that has been studied in cancer patients, uh, terminal cancer patients, looking at the last years of life, showing really positive results as far as easing anxiety and giving them much better quality of life. Um, there, there's some really positive results in there. And so right now there's a, a bit of an explosion in interest in the field to be able to say, to be able to do studies on specific conditions and specific ways to use these different therapies, um, as a means to improve mental health problems. And, you know, what's important to note is that for, for pretty much all of these studies, this isn't just giving people the substance and letting them hang out. It, it's actually doing therapy with them. It's it being involved with a therapist and having a pretty rigorous protocol where it's not just they're, you know, one time doing a session with, with a therapist and they're given the MDMA or, or psilocybin. Most of these are where um, you know, they've developed a therapeutic relationship with someone in previous sessions, really prepared for the experience. And then, you know, the psychedelic is administered in between one and three sessions uh, with guidance. And then there's post sessions as well, post therapy sessions to help process and integrate what came up. And it, it seems to be that those pre and post sessions are just as important as the experience itself. And so I just want to you know, say that off the bat, that this is a little bit different than just going eating some mushrooms with your friends in the woods. There's a protocol, there's a, you know, a way to think about this and actually um, kind of frame it in a therapeutic way. And, you know, when we look at the, the the research and, and I can make this uh, publication that we put out available for anyone that's listening. You can put it in the show notes because uh, I'm not going to be able to remember all of the exact statistics right now off the top of my head. But you know when you look at the average uh, treatment rate for PTSD, um, you know it, it's much less than 50%. I think uh, standard of care is about 30, 40%, something like that remission over a year, um, maybe less. But with the MDMA trials with veterans that had PTSD, they were showing between a 70 and 80% improvement rate over a year uh, they, that the people in these trials no longer qualified for a diagnosis of, of PTSD, which is absolutely incredible when you look at how difficult something like that is to treat and uh, you know just the, the effectiveness of these novel treatment methods. Um, and, you know, the other thing, too, I'll mention is that this isn't actually new. There was a lot of research going on on LSD in the 50s before it became illegal in 19 in the 19, early 1970s. And like you mentioned, Woodstock, you know, there was kind of this social, uh, social and cultural backlash against the widespread use of drugs and and 
um, of psychedelics kind of in the hippie culture. And so they outlawed them, but that also outlawed a lot of the outlawed a lot of the legitimate medical research that was happening. And a lot of people really don't know about this era in, in history, but there's profoundly positive results from these studies in the fifties on alcoholism and other mental health issues that we're just kind of picking up on now over the past 10, 15 years with some of the green lighting that's happened because of the mental health crisis and the real need to figure out ways to address this because the ways that um you know are, are being used or have been used just are not cutting it yeah the magnitude and difference of efficacy so far you know i know we're not looking at head-to-head -head trials but it's really pretty promising the types of statistics and results we're getting out of these trials so really highlights how important it is to not uh, be judgmental. And, you know, for me, kind of assuming this was not a field that that was going to be anything I needed to be interested in. And it really just highlights that. I would love to highlight also the way that these substances are working. So I know that there's still a lot we don't know, but, you know, we know ketamine has sort of this dissociation type of effect where you feel like you're kind of having an out-of-body experience. And then psychedelics are, you know, basically having this effect where we're taken away from this zoomed in ego and seeing more of the collective and how we play a role in the larger collective. What is your understanding of how these substances are working? It sounds like a very spiritual sort of approach, which is different from traditional antidepressants. So what is your understanding on mechanism of action? Mm, so that's a pretty multifaceted uh, question and answer there. And we can kind of look at some of the different things that have been theorized. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll talk about some of what I think is going on. Um, but like you said, you know, a lot of what these experiences do is they dissolve the typical boundaries that we have between our normal waking ego consciousness and the rest of reality in that, you know, when I'm talking to you right now in a pretty normal waking state, you know, I woke up pretty recently, I had my coffee, certainly haven't any, had any psychedelics this morning. Uh, I'm aware that my body and my mind is somewhat separate from yours, right? I can, I can be aware at, at some level, you know, looking at it from a spiritual sense that, yeah, we're, we're cut from the same cloth. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm another manifestation of the same energy that you are. And yet we're stuck in these bodies, right? Well, psychedelics tend to loosen that boundary and that barrier a little bit and help people really experience that on a somatic felt level that's very different than the normal reality. And, and when you look at a lot of the research on addiction and depression and a lot of these deeply rooted mental health issues, um, isolation and disconnection are some of the core features and, and core underlying aspects of depression. And, you know, you feel alone. You don't feel like you're able to really be in relationship with other people. And the psychedelic experience tends to spark or foster a sense of deeper connection, not just to others, but to the nature of reality itself, to nature, to the world around us. And that can be profoundly healing in a way that, you know, we just don't have access to on a daily basis. Um, and what, what the research has shown is the, what they refer to as the mystical type experience or that boundary dissolution feeling of being in touch with something larger than oneself. Um, you know, you can think of any of the, um, you know, 
descriptions of uh, historical spiritual figures getting in touch with God or angels or anything like that, that just blows their mind wide open. Right. It's like um, those are mystical type experiences and there's a, a very big interest in kind of tracking this in the psychedelic experience when people have these boundary dissolving experiences and feel like they're deeply connected with something greater than themselves. And what they found is that the mystical type experience strongly predicts um, recovery from depression with psilocybin. And it also influences outcomes in ketamine. Um, and what you know that says to some degree, I think, is that the connection, the fostering of connection and getting out of this sense of being isolated actually has a profound effect or like, you know, when we're able to recontextualize who we are in the context of something greater, uh, it actually has benefits for the long, the long term. So that that's one aspect is the sort of connection. Um, and, and again, you know, each one of these substances tends to, you know, have a little different qualities. Um, and, you know, for, for example, with, with MDMA, uh, which is the one that's been studied well on, on, on PTSD, uh, a, a major feature of it seems to be the ability to reconsolidate memories. And I'll explain what that means in a minute here, but one of the, the, the bio, the physiological features of MDMA is that it turns down the amygdala in turns down activity in the amygdala in the brain, which is the emotional center of the brain that typically is overly active in people with PTSD, overly active in people that have a strong emotional reaction to a memory that is keeping them kind of going in a loop, right? It's like um, they have a heightened sense of fear and um, fear and, um, you know, like small triggers might set off this fear response, uh, because the brain is constantly looking for some for danger. And what MDMA does pretty well is it actually turns down the volume a little bit on that emotional memory response and gives people an opportunity to go back and revisit older memories in a safer way that doesn't feel so threatening in the moment. And what they call memory reconsolidation seems to lie at the core of a lot of the effective therapies um, for PTSD and other um, trauma-related issues where you're actually going back and changing the emotional relationship to previous memories, where something that seemed really scary and you know, is continuously triggering the fear response um, can be um, sort of he really healed. Like you know, there's a, a a resolution aspect of that happening, and and you see that in a lot of the the experiential therapies like EMDR that are used um, you know outside of psychedelics. Um, but that processing seems to be facilitated by MDMA. So there's the, the brain changes that are happening in the moment that allow people to process things a bit differently. And on the flip side, one of the, like you mentioned, the, the disassociative qualities of ketamine uh, seem to facilitate some sense of also being able to address thoughts and memories that maybe would bring up really um, hard physical sensations in the body, you know, when you have a strong emotion, like your body has a response to it. And because ketamine is an anesthetic and actually shuts down a little bit of the 
um, the feeling sensation in the body, it's actually a little bit easier for people generally to go back and deal with things that otherwise might be overwhelming, you know, might be overwhelming to uh, bring up and think about because of the, the physical bodily reaction to those kind of things. And um, there's also, um, and I'm just going to keep going here if that's okay with you. Um, Perfect. There's, there's also, you know, the, the neurogenesis aspect of these compounds. One of the, the big features of them as, um, as chemicals is they tend to promote the growth of new neurons in the brain after the fact. And so there's these, these windows of opportunity uh, for neuroplasticity or the rewiring of the brain in a way that, you know, gives people the opportunity to, to really kind of set new patterns. And this is where the post-integration process that I was mentioning of, of working with the therapist and continuing to revisit the experience and see how you can actually take what was, you know, garnered from that experience and, and apply it into your life. You know, it's like, it's one thing just to have this kind of one-off boundary dissolving, ego dissolving, mystical experience and, and it just be isolated. But then how do you actually take that and you know, make it a part of the way that you're approaching life. And so there's, um, you know, the opportunity for these new to kind of ingrain these new patterns, these new ways of thinking that seems to be promoted by these substances as well. Um, so that's just, you know, a, a kind of a small sliver of what the proposed mechanisms are. There's, there's more layers to that, but those are some of the major ones that I, I think are, you know, important um, to, to the process. Super interesting. I really appreciate you diving deeper into that and, you know, our understanding of the mechanism of action. And, you know, just to let the listeners know who may not know, there's still a lot we don't know about antidepressants. So, uh, you know, this this world of unknown in science is uh, forever growing, although we try to narrow it and we try to get more understanding, but the human body is just super complex. And so it's always so fascinating to me when we can uncover something, but then also just acknowledge that there's a lot we still don't know. What would you say, I'm thinking about the person who might be listening, who might be saying, you know, this all sounds super fantastic, but this is terrifying, you know, going, I, I really don't want to go on an LSD trip to get out of my depression, you know, that unknown of, of losing control or the feeling of losing control of my mind, it doesn't sound like the best option for me. So what might you say to the person who maybe would benefit from this, maybe once we have more information, might be somebody who is otherwise resistant to our traditional modalities, but is understandably pretty fearful of what this type of an option might look like? That's a, a, a totally legitimate fear that should be addressed and talked about. And, and that's really why, um, you know, these protocols for using these things therapeutically have been developed because doing this stuff on your own is not a great idea. Uh, you really want to be working with someone who has experience and, and knows what the risks are, knows how to, um, you know, work with you in session. And, you know, I'll say right now there, there's not, a, a le very many legal avenues to this in the, in the United States right now. Uh, there's certainly retreats that do psilocybin and um, there are actually, I will say the ketamine therapy is available. Ketamine therapy is available right now. So, um, you know, being able to work with someone who can address those fears and look at, you know, what is that sense of control 
And how is that maybe filtering into other areas of your life, you know, on a psychological level? And what is what does that mean symbolically to be able to let go in that moment? Because sometimes that in and of itself is the healing process, the not gripping on so tightly to who we think we are, um, you know, can be can be very healing for for a moment and then going back and, and saying, you know, I, I survived. I was I, I I'm here again. Right. So um, you know, I'll, I'll say that anyone that is listening that is interested uh to this should probably wait until this stuff is available as a legal therapy. Um, you know, ketamine is available especially for for people with treatment resistant depression. Uh there's a couple different models that people are using. Um, there's the infusion model and then there's the infusion model with, with psychotherapy and both have shown to be effective, but it's my personal opinion that just getting the medicine itself kind of pales in comparison to working with someone where you can continue to process the experience and actually do the psychotherapy part with it too. Um, because otherwise it's just kind of the same as an antidepressant where in a lot of ways it's masking the underlying symptom or underlying cause of the symptoms where, you know, just to go back what you're saying in terms of the kind of comparing these compounds to an SSRI um, for the most part, you know, SSRIs tend to uh, mask symptoms without necessarily addressing the underlying cause. Like, you know, if you're depressed and you have a underlying a, unaddressed unmet needs and you don't actually get those needs met relationally and emotionally well you know that's still going to be there regardless of if you're feeling a little bit better because your brain chemistry has changed and yet sometimes that can open up the opportunity to get those emotional needs met and and you know show up more like you want to in relationships and and do the work so on the on the other side of this though psychedelics tend to open up the opportunity to really do the work and heal and actually create different psychological dynamics that then balances your brain chemistry because you're relating to people differently you're be able to experience emotions a little bit differently or have different you know patterns of response to things and so you know when we're we're talking about kind of the difference between those medicines, um, you know, psychedelics are really exciting because they offer an avenue to really change things rather than just kind of shift the brain chemistry without addressing the underlying psychological stuff too. Uh, and so that's why I think that using ketamine with the psychotherapy aspect can be profoundly more helpful because you're actually able to take that experience, take that opportunity for neurogenesis um, and for brain plasticity and combine it with you know, the processing work of uh, confronting the shadow material and, and confronting the, you know, maybe the trauma or whatever is there that is, you know, contributing to the depression in the first place. It's so, so interesting. And I really, again, appreciate you diving into the details so we can get a better picture of what we're dealing with with psychedelics. I think one of the more surprising things for me as I have been diving into the research and understanding this a bit better is how different our traditional modality of antidepressants seems to be from psychedelics. So, you know, with traditional antidepressants, unless it's a situational depression and we might be treating for a short period of time, most of the time we're looking at, you know, daily dosing for a lengthy period of time. 
Whereas in one of the studies I was looking at with psilocybin, you know, it was two singular doses two weeks apart with pretty dramatic efficacy results. And so it's really interesting and surprising to me how different the picture looks from mechanism of action to how often we're taking it and into the duration of treatment as well as the results and response. So what has been the most surprising thing for you if you were to look back at your research into this? What has surprised you the most, been the most shocking or you know, been the most unpredictable part of, of what you have found? You know, one of the, the most, so it's funny, like I can't say that it was surprising, but it was just surprising to see the numbers and the data on this. Um, one of my favorite things that I've, I've found in the research is the relationship of psychedelics to nature relatedness and there being a like linear response curve, like a, a like basically between the more time someone has taken psychedelics and the more connected they feel to nature. And you can look at this and it's, you know, on a graph, it's a, it's a straight line upwards, uh, tends to be the more, you know, someone has used psychedelics, the more they feel like in relationship to the natural world. And there is so much research, uh, already on the benefits of that measure nature relatedness, you know, that's what they call it, uh, on the benefits of mental health, right? So just without the psychedelics in general, people being in relationship to nature tends to improve mental health and feeling connected to the natural world and not isolated because, you know, when you look at what the way we've set up society, especially over the past hundred years or so, this is kind of a, a new way of, of, you know, existing. Like we were cut off, we're in cities, we're under artificial lights all the time, we're in boxes. And we, you know, I think a lot of people feel more like, you know, we're just kind of visitors here on this planet. We're not actually in it. We're not part of nature. And I, I feel like that's a major contributor to mental health issues and a major contributor to a lot of the issues we're looking at right now with climate change and um, extractive capitalism. And you know, these are these are major existential issues that if we don't figure out are going to potentially end civilization that we know it, you know, in the next hundred years or so. And psychedelics tend to create a higher level of feeling in relationship with nature. And, you know, there's an aspect of the mental health component, right? That's important, just being able to contextualize oneself as part of the natural world and, uh, you know, subject to these cycles and changes. And um, there, there's something that's simultaneously, um, you know, I, I think very comforting about that, but also very sobering about kind of the ultimate nature of reality and, you know, what what, where, what, where humans are, you know, in that, in that. And so it just kind of, it puts us in our place a little bit to be aware of, you know, humans in relationship with nature. And it's just interesting to think about, you know, what role psychedelics might have in ecological awareness, in being able to maybe course correct a little bit away and maybe have the pendulum swing a little bit in the opposite direction of the hyper technologically focused mechanistic materialist society that we have all, you know, kind of collectively agreed upon is the way we're doing things. And yet it is really causing some 
major problems. And, you know, there's a lot of major problems predicted down the road. So it's just an interesting thing to consider in terms of what is the role of, of these compounds that can create these experiences where we feel deep intimate intimacy with the natural world and, you know, how that might impact um, kind of where we're going and, and the perspective that we're taking with this whole human civilization thing. I, I know that's kind of a very broad you know, lens to look through, but um, that is one of the things that uh, really stood out to me when I was looking at the research. Yes, that nature piece really is so interesting. I'm so glad that you brought that up and went a little bit deeper into that. And I also really love that the trend is moving toward, you know, if and when we do have more large scale use of psychedelics that we are planning to do sort of pre and post counseling and have a more structured way in which to do this, which I think gives people some sense of peace around knowing, yeah, you're not going to just be sent out into the woods, as you mentioned, or into the forest to find the magic mushrooms that we do have some, you know, sense of regulation and, um, support around the use of these substances. I also find it really interesting that it hasn't been largely government supported, that it really has been a lot of private investors coming forward, even investing and funding into the Johns Hopkins Center that really just want to have the research done and are willing to put forward the funding to make that happen. So that's been a really interesting piece for me as well. What is your sort of hope or understanding of what the future looks like for psychedelics? What are you hoping might happen with the substances and how the treatment might be more available? And what is your understanding of the speed with which that might happen? Because although ketamine is currently in use, and that was a little bit easier since it was already in use in operating rooms, psychedelics you know, have a little bit more of a hurdle to get over since they were not already in widespread use from a medical standpoint. So what's sort of your your understanding of that and your hope for the future? Yeah. So that's an interesting question. And I, I just love the way you, you know, pointed out that this really is a grassroots movement. This is not a government top-down funded kind of thing. All of the money that was raised for the uh, MAPS MDMA trials, MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, and they've been around since the 80s trying to get this stuff to happen. Um, all of that was private funding. And so, you know, the they really pushed these initial studies through uh, to say, hey, this this stuff can make a difference because you know, people have been experimenting with this stuff forever. When you look back at, you know, ancient humans, a lot of cultures had some type of psychedelic uh, plant medicine, um, you know, embedded in their spiritual practice or in their medicine. And this isn't something that that's brand new. You know, there's uh, there's a, a pretty strong precedent for the the benefits of this on on culture and you know personal growth and personal awareness and 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 just being able to navigate this reality together. Um, so, you know, in terms of where things are going, um, we, there is definitely more interest um, from, from government, from private equity fund, from, you know, private fundraisers. Uh, and there, there's a number of pharmaceutical companies that have sprung up that are working on, you know, their own use cases for these things. Um, some people are, you know, studying you, you can you can look at 
a broad range of different mental health conditions. And, and, you know, there's, there's almost guaranteed now someone that's either doing a study or going to be doing a study on in the next couple of years. So, you know, the, and like you said, ketamine's available. Um, MDMA is probably a couple years away. You know, I think we're looking at uh, 2023 is my understanding of kind of first uh, legal use outside of clinical trials. Um, and it's going to be, you know, have to be rolled out in a small sequential way. Um, and unfortunately it's probably going to be pretty cost prohibitive at, at first. Um, and yet over the next five to 10 years, hopefully the cost come down, comes down, it becomes more available. There's more trained clinicians. Um, and it's, it's going to be kind of a slow seepage outward, uh, into public awareness and, um, you know, just general adoption. Uh, psilocybin, it looks like we're maybe more like four to five years out conservatively. Uh, there's just more, uh, there's more basic research that needs to be done despite these very strong early trials. Um, there's probably a little bit more of a, of red tape to cross with that. And, you know, when you look at, um, the how long it's taken MDMA to get through, you know, we're looking at, I think probably about 15 years or so. Um, which is really unfortunate and maybe there will be some increased access um for for psilocybin and you know there, there's certain program like programs like there's something called right to try where um if someone is um in a has a terminal condition and there's a uh, unapproved treatment that has shown efficacy if that person's able to pay for it they can legally do it so there are some you know kind of roundabout ways and there are clinical trials. So, you know, if you're someone that is listening to this and interested in, in this, uh, there, there's a couple of websites that list all the clinical trials that are going on with these. And if there's one in your area, you may be able to join, um, you know, what, what I see for the future is these things become part of the standard of care. And instead of pumping someone full of SSRIs long-term, you know, we actually look at what could be a healing intervention in, you know, that doesn't take, you know, consistent use over time. And, you know, maybe this is something that gets used as maintenance. Um, and, and, you know, the other piece too, is that I, I have to say, despite being a strong component or proponent of, um, you know, protocols and therapy in the therapeutic sense, my, my personal orientation is I'm a big proponent of cognitive liberty. Like I, I strongly believe people should be able to put whatever they want in their body to alter their consciousness, however they want. Um, and there not be criminal penalties for choosing to alter your consciousness in a certain way. So I also really hope that we'll see more of the legalization and decriminalization initiatives for plant medicines, like we've seen in Santa Cruz and, and Denver and Oregon. Um, and I, I hope that spreads as well because, you know, there, there are safe ways to use these things. Uh, there's always a risk. Um, but you know, I, I, on one hand feel like, you know, we got to do the research and make sure that every I, you know, I is dotted and T is crossed. And yet the situation in the world is, is so dire and these things have such a strong history of use and pretty low real risk factors when you look at it, when they're used safely and correctly and, um, you know, able to be navigated well, uh, that I, I think that these things should be available um, for use if someone chooses to, to do so, maybe without the, the clinical setting, 
But if you're trying to treat a specific mental health condition, then yes, I think that should actually be used with a therapist and in that that setting. But you know, there are other benefits, um, you know, like the spirituality and the the connectedness that you know a lot of people could benefit from. So um, I, I hope and and see the future of these things being, um, you know, not criminally penalized for choosing to change the way someone you know is seeing and thinking and feeling about something in the moment. Thank you so much again, David, for spending this time with us today. I really have loved our conversation. I think that this is a fascinating topic, and I think there's really some great hope on the horizon for those who may be struggling with some mental health disorders. And I love that there is a Gratz Roots movement to fund this and get us the information we need so we can help more people. Thank you again. I will include all of the pertinent and important links in the show notes so people can find you and find your research. Thank you so much again, David. Absolutely, Claudia. Thanks for having me on. I hope you have all found this super interesting. I hope you've learned something, even if maybe you knew a little bit before. I hope that David has been able to shed some light on some of the advances in science and some of the insights he has gained from his own research. If you feel like this would help anybody, I would love for you to share it with them. Um, Sharing is caring, right? Let's share the love. And if you found value, as always, I would so appreciate an honest review on iTunes. That's how people find us. And I always appreciate you coming here each and every week so we can all learn to better mind our wellness. I'll see you here again next time. 